Hey friends, welcome back to the Pulpit to Pew podcast in this week's edition of The Classroom where we have been studying the book of Hebrews and we're taking it about, trying to go about two weeks per chapter and we are on chapter two, we're in the second part of Hebrews chapter two. Last week I only covered four verses, this week I'm going to go verse five all the way through 18, finish out this this chapter. There's some really good verses in here, some difficult verses to understand, but we didn't get bogged down in the weeds of it too much kind of looked at the the main theme here. And the main theme was the humanity of Jesus Christ and what he came to this earth to do. So thank you for listening to the podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get the newsletter each, more like a devotional, every Monday. And uh, you can go to pulpit-pew.com to get that. So without further ado, here is this week's Adult Bible Study. All right, let's take our Bibles, go back to Hebrews 2. We're trying to take two weeks in every chapter. If we if we accomplish that, that's great. Last week, we only did the first four verses, so that leaves us with several verses today, and there's several tricky verses, so uh, we'll see how it goes. But um, it's not too bad as you walk through it, so sometimes the wording of it, it can be a little confusing. And uh, so last week, we, we had some great verses. We started in verse 1 when it talked about we need to take the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. We really talked about drifting and the danger of drifting. It can happen in our spiritual lives if we're not careful. And, um, and so that's where we've kind of focused on last week. But as we ended last week, he did mention angels again. And we've kind of talked about angels over the first two chapters because of the Jewish respect for angels, how much they looked at angels, the Jewish people. And so he is showing that Jesus is better in the first chapter than prophets, but also than angels. And that does carry over into chapter two and even into this week's lesson. But as he is, as he's kind of teaching this in the chapter one, he emphasized the deity of Jesus, that he is creator, that he is and, and he was talking about the really how magnificent Jesus is. Today we're going to kind of get into the humanity of Jesus and how even in Jesus' humanity and what he came to this earth to do, he was still greater than angels. And he's kind of leaving that as a sub-theme as he's teaching through this. Uh, but he's also going to talk a lot about suffering today. And so let's just pick up starting in verse 5. It says, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So again, he's making this contrast to angels, and he's saying he has not put angels, the world, to come, is how he phrases it. Now, I had studied it one way, and in our discussion back there, uh, one of the other teachers brought up something else when I went to look at it. And it does seem to, when it says the world to come, uh, some commentators take... It's, what you maybe would sound common sense and say, well, that's talking about the world in the future during the millennial kingdom. A lot of commentators are looking at this as something, the world to come as the idea of the world as it is inhabited and refers back to creation because you remember at creation, God gave man dominion over the things of this world. So we have as mankind dominion over the animals. Now in our house, the animals have dominion over me, but outside of our place, Every outside of my home. No, I'm just kidding. So, but mankind has dominion over the animals. But he said he's not put angels in that position. Angels have not been given dominion. And now if we wanted to fast forward to the millennial kingdom, remember who rules and reigns in the millennial kingdom? Jesus, but he allows us 
to rule and reign on this earth. My dad always jokes that he's going to be the mayor of Cunot whenever we're in the millennial kingdom. That's what he wants. I'm like, well, okay, that's what you strive for. But, um, but angels, again, when you study the millennial kingdom, there's, there's no subjection of this world to angels. They are ministering spirits. That's what they are. Now, I'm not belittling angels. I'm not trying to make enemies in heaven when I get up there. Not that I can. I'm joking. But, uh, but I'm just saying that's not their role. God has put man over the, the things of this world. But now, with that being said, he goes on. He says, but... Verse 6, one in a certain place testified. Now he's going to reference Psalm 8, verses 4 through 6. So I want to read the next few verses, and he's quoting Psalm 8 in the Old Testament, which remember I told you that Hebrews quotes the Old Testament more than maybe any other book. And so he's starting to quote that, but he says in verse 6, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set them over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he hath put in, in, all, in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. All right, a lot of words there. Uh, but a couple things to reference. Number one, so mankind has been put in dominion of everything, but it doesn't look like mankind's in control. There's a lot of chaos on this world, a lot of chaos going on. And so it doesn't look like we have control of anything that's going on. But then he's also referencing here that he's made Jesus, he took upon the form of a man. And so when he took upon the form of man, he was made, in a sense, a little lower than the angels, is what the psalmist is referring to. Because the king, the creator of this world, chapter 1, talking about the deity and everything of Jesus, he took upon the form of man. Now, we understand that. We talk about that in church as you grow up in Sunday school and as you hear it in lessons. It's the, the humanity of Jesus. It's called the hypostatic union. He was 100% man, but also 100% God. And he, when he came to this earth, he came, he was born of a virgin, and he lived a sinless life, a perfect life, but he was man in every sense. He was going to suffer, and it's going to, we're going to, I don't want to get ahead of myself at the end of these, at the end of this whole study today, but he would suffer like we suffer. And there was a reason for that. And so, though everything, though man has dominion, though Jesus in his position has dominion, made himself below that. And then the last phrase of verse 8, it says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. It doesn't look like that what this world, that we as mankind have dominion, and that, that Jesus has dominion, it doesn't look like it's under control right now. But then look at this next phrase, verse 9. But we see Jesus. It's a neat little phrase. We see Jesus. Not we're looking to Jesus or we did see Jesus. We see right now in the present tense, we see Jesus who is made little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. So the first section, five through eight, seems to be talking about man and on the dominion of man, but that it just seems to be falling apart. But now we see Jesus. He was made a little lower than angels. 
He was crowned with glory and honor. And, and, and he was said it was held by the grace of God that he should taste death for every man. He came, and a lot of gospel in this today is we're seeing, and whenever I start talking about any teacher talks about the gospel, it ought to help us to be like, oh, not that, well, I'm saved, I don't need this. It ought to help us say, how can I more clearly articulate the gospel to someone who's lost? How can I process the gospel so that I can simplify it and help someone who's lost maybe in the future. But here he's just saying, so Jesus was made a little lower than the angels, though he was crowned with all of this glory and all of this honor, but he was going to have to taste death. And verse 10 says, "For this is a great verse, verse 10, for it became him for whom all things and by whom all things in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of our salvation perfect. The word means complete through sufferings. I love that phrase, captain. Two phrases I like, bringing many sons to glory. The, and, and, and it says the verse 10, the second, the third word there, become, means it's fitting. So it says, look at it again, for it is fitting for him whom are all things and by him are all things. So interesting wording there to say it's fitting why would it be fitting for the god of this world the creator of this world to come and to die because he's the only one that could you and i couldn't take the best human there is and they still couldn't die for the sins of the world so it's fitting that god would send his son who's perfect and holy and the only one that could redeem us from our sin it's fitting that he would send him he says by who for whom are all things everything is made for him we saw that in colossians 1 17 a couple weeks ago by him are all things. It means he's the creator of everything. So it's fitting that he would die so that he could bring many sons to glory. It's only him. He's the one that brings us from the sin of the, the bondage of our sin to a place of salvation. And then the phrase that it's used here, he's called it's called the captain of our salvation, perfect through sufferings. The word captain there, and when we get to Hebrews 12, and you guys remember this, all right, in like 20 weeks when we get to Hebrews 12, but when it says the author and finisher of our faith, that word author there is the same Greek word as the word captain here. And so he is the author, or he is the captain of our salvation. He makes us complete through his sufferings. He pioneered the way for us is another idea of this word captain. And that's what Jesus has done for us. But he had to suffer for that to take place. I think sometimes in our churches we grow up so often hearing about the suffering of Jesus, the cross, that it can, it can if we're not careful, lose its impact. Because we know, oh yeah, he's nailed to the cross. And we just you hear it so often, sometimes we can lose the, the wonder of what took place. But... This is the creator of the world, God, suffering for us. And here's why, not only so that he can captain our salvation, that he could bring, make us more complete, but he says in verse 11, for both he that sanctified, that's Jesus, and they who are sanctified, that's you, are all one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. I love that phrase. So we're all one. It talks about the union of Christ. And so when you hear me sometimes teach about how Christ in us, Colossians says, Christ in me, the hope of glory. When we talk about the walking in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh, all of these phrases are because Christ, we are, when you're saved, you are one with Jesus Christ. And so you can have, that's when we talk about, remember I put on the board last week, our present, 
our, our present, our future, and our past. And I talk about right now, you don't have to live under the bondage of sin because Jesus Christ won victory for us. But I could word it this way, because we are in union with Jesus Christ. He abides within us. And so he gives us the victory that we need every single day. We are one with Christ. He sanctified, verse 11, so that those who are sanctified were all one. And then I like this little phrase. He says, he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's never ashamed of us. Sometimes we, we feel, it's like, well, I can't come before God. We'll do something. We'll sin. And we're like, you know, and we're going to get into this in our Sunday night series some, but we'll sin and we think, well, I just can't come to God. I can't ask forgiveness. That's all lies of Satan. We feel like he's ashamed of us. He suffered and then declared, I'm not ashamed of you. Say, so, yeah, but that's but that was all my sins were already paid for, but now I'm committing more sins. No, he died for the sins that you're he knew you were going to commit. He's not ashamed of you. He's never ashamed. He loves us. I was joking with my sister. She always acts like we're all ashamed of her. You know, she was like, Well, nobody even knows that Brad so by the way, I have a sister in this class right now, all right, just in case. But this week somebody came into the bank and they saw my name on my and usually when they see my name, they'll say, Oh, you know, you Wes McClure's son, yeah. Or they'll say, or did, did you have a brother named Brian? He used to teach at South Putt, yeah. But first time ever this week, a guy comes in, he saw my name, and he goes, "Are you Rebecca, Rebecca's brother?" And I thought, "Whoa, oh, what is happening here?" And I even told him, I said, I even told him, I said, nobody ever asked that, all right. And I said, we need to tell her that she will be so excited because no one ever asked that. It's not that we are ashamed of her. Her last name, her last name Clark, kind of a little shady, but no, we're not ashamed. But sometimes we, on this earth, even we, we become ashamed of things. But Jesus says, and he looks down at us right now in the current state that you are, and he says, I'm not ashamed to call you my brother. He loves us. He's, he's united with us. He suffered for us. He loves you, and he cares for you. And it says in verse 12, saying, he says, I will declare thy name unto my brother. And he's, not only is he not ashamed, but he's going to declare our name in the brethren. He says, in the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. You see, there's no shame here. There's an excitement about this union. He suffered. You would think the suffering would bring some some frustration, but no, he's God. The suffering was to bring us to himself. He loves us with a with a, an amazing love. And that's it, this kind of, it's hard for me to separate what we're trying to teach on Sunday nights or preach about on Sunday nights with this lesson, because in the lessons that we are doing on Sunday nights, we're kind of working through this book, but as, as a guide, and he goes to Hebrews a lot, because Hebrews shows us the heart of Jesus for us. We often think of Jesus as this uh, as frustrated with us or angry with us or some as someone said to me after my recent message well i look at jesus as maybe he loves us but god is like angry at us and it may, I, I get that i understand why but the truth is they love us i say they knowing that they're a trinity knowing that they are one but god the father loves you that's why he set all this in motion that's why he gave his son to suffer and die think about how that just in the human sense, if I had to give one of my children, even for one of you in this room, and I and I, I care for every one of you in this room, 
But if you needed a heart transplant and you needed my son's heart, you're going to die. <laughs> you're not getting my son's heart. Well, maybe one of them, but not the other one. No, I'm just kidding. You're not going to. And I care for you, but I care for my, my children. But God gave his son for us. And so, so there's some suffering, but the suffering is to bring us together that, that we can have this union with himself. And he's not ashamed. But then again in verse 14, which, by the way, in 10 through 13, he quoted some more. He quoted Psalm 22. He quoted Isaiah 8. So he's, again, proving his point to these Jewish believers by going back to the Old Testament. And he's using that, which is still an effective way to minister to Jewish people today because they don't believe in the New Testament. Jewish people don't because they don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, the ones that are still lost. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, so that the whole New Testament doesn't matter to them because it's based on Christ. So you go back to the Old Testament and you prove that Jesus was, he fulfilled everything there, and then you move forward into the New Testament. It's an effective way to minister to a Jew if you ever get in that situation. But then in verse 14, 14 through 18, he says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. He became, Jesus became flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. What a great phrase. What a, what a, great, what a great thought that he's, he's kind of, um, it's kind of like he's spiking the football here a little bit. I feel like when I read these verses tonight, you're going to see someone score a touchdown, hopefully not Kelsey or any of those guys. And they're going to spike that touchdown because it's like, yes, I just accomplished something. This is great. They spike it. They're excited. But here he's saying that Jesus took upon this, this flesh and blood for, yes, so he could bring us together, which he's just talked about, but he's destroying the, who has the power of death. He's destroying. He even calls him out, the devil. He's defeated. And that's why last week when I put this on here, in our past, we were under the bondage of, of sin. We were in the, really in the hand of Satan. But the day that we got saved, we were saved from the past. We're saved from the present. We're saved from the future. We have now victory because of Jesus over everything Satan wants to do. But every one of us would probably agree. But sometimes Satan still wins. Yeah. As I've talked about many times, because I often let him win. Yes? So, Satan is not as powerful as Jesus was, was he? Right? No. They're not on the same level? Not on the same level, because he's a created being. Yeah. He was a cherubim. He was created as a cherubim day one. One of the highest, I was reading a little bit about this this week. I don't remember where. Maybe it was in this study. One of the highest of angels, but nowhere near, because he's not God, so nowhere near that. And so he, he, he can't stand at all against Jesus, but he's been given delegated authority. He's been given. He's called the prince of power of this world right now. And so he's given some authority. He even has access. We see in Job, which I think my dad's going to be preaching on Job. In some way, we don't fully understand how, but he has access to heaven right now too. He can come before. He's the accuser of the brethren. He can accuse us day and night. That's one of his jobs, one of his ministries. But then... In that, which I think you'll hear in a few weeks on Sunday nights, we also have an advocate in Jesus. As he accuses the brethren, we have an advocate in Jesus. So he doesn't have uh, the power. He is powerful, but he doesn't have the power of, of, of Jesus. But now he's a defeated one. 
The only power he has over us is what we allow in this point because of our union with Jesus Christ. So good question. So then he goes on in neat verse there. So I like verse 14 talking about the, he's destroyed Satan in a sense. But then verse 15 he says, and delivered them. So he's talking about, I think, us. Who through fear of death. You know anybody that has a fear of death? You ever had that fear of death before in your life? He says he delivers them that have the fear of death, or who through the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. There's some people out there that just fear death. I like how one guy separated this week I was listening to. He said, I don't fear death because of Jesus. I just fear dying. And I think he was talking about the pain of dying. And I kind of I agree with that. You know, I don't want to be burnt, really. I'd really not go that way. I'd hate to drown. I don't really want to go that way. As a matter of fact, just in my sleep would be fine, okay? But so I, the dying part of it is scary. But death itself, for a Christian, because of what Jesus has done, we know that to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord, the Bible tells us. So death itself. But there are some that fear death. And he says he's delivering these people who are just held hostage by this fear of death, you don't have to be. And I think this is a neat verse, one that before studying this week, I didn't really remember, but if you're ever coming across and talking to someone that has a, has a fear of death, you can bring them to this, this passage right here and show them about who, what Jesus did. It, you go to verse 14, he took on flesh and blood that he can destroy Satan, but also deliver you from that fear of death. I think that's a great passage. I've never taken someone there. But now that I've seen this and studied this, I think that would be a great passage to go to. And so he's talking about, again, what Jesus has done. He's given us union. He's given us victory. He's given us uh, hope over death. But then verse 16, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels. So he's coming back to this angels. It feels like he's just hammering angels, but he's not. He's just proving a point that God and Jesus did not take on the form of an angel. He took upon the form of a man. He said he took on him the seed of Abraham. He became, he was a Jew. He took upon that form, not the form of an angel. Verse 17, wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made into the likeness of his brethren. So we know he took upon, we told you today, we're going to talk about his humanity, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, verse 18 is great, so let me stop in 17 again. Another good verse, if you're taking someone here. But he took upon the form of his brother, and he took upon the form of man, because he became our high priest. What did the high priest do? The high priest would take the sacrifice of sins. Remember the blood that was shed, the goats in the Old Testament? He would take that and offer it for his people. Well, Jesus became the final high priest. He is the eternal high priest. He took the sins of uh, he sacrificed his blood and shed it, and, and, and he took our sins upon himself. There's no more sacrifice that needs to be made for sin. But now as our high priest, he can go to God for us. He intercedes for us. He, he is our advocate. He goes to God for us. He is the high priest. And as high priest, he can give grace to help us when we're tempted. This next verse, he's going to talk about temptation. But now as a high priest, he, he can give us this grace. And it says at the end there, if you were witness somebody, he made reconciliation for the sins of the people. Reconciliation is a good Bible word. Reconciliation be, be, being that we are sinful, 
Before we are saved, we are sinful, condemned to a place called hell, and God is holy. But Jesus reconciled sinful man to a holy God by his death and suffering on the cross. Reconciliation. He brought us together because of what he did. But then verse 18. Look at this. Great little verse. For in that he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to secure. We don't use that word too much. It means to help. He is able to help them that are tempted. Now, there's going to be suffering on this earth. Why, why would we think, as people today in 2024, why would we think that we would not suffer when God allowed his own son to suffer? We're going to go through some suffering. But in that suffering, Jesus and his humanity suffered one reason, so that when we suffer, he can be that help. We're going to get to it again in Hebrews chapter number 4. It talks about in other places when it says Jesus was in all points tempted like as we are. But Jesus went through that temptation, that suffering, the tempting, and the, all that he went through. So that it tells us in this verse, so he, and it says, He is able to secure, to help them that are tempted. When we're tempted, when we suffer, he's available. He, we have that union. It keeps coming back to that union. We have that union with him now so that when we do go through the temptation, when we do go through the suffering, we need to cry out to God. It has to become real to us. Like sometimes, man, I'm getting to maybe too practical here, and but sometimes it feels like in my life, and I'm assuming maybe in your life as well, that though we believe all of this in a, and I don't believe in this word, but I'm going to say it in a mystical way sometimes. It's like, all right, there is a God out there. I've just never seen him and I believe in it. But when we go through the things that we need God, like the temptation or the suffering, we don't call on him because we can't see him. It's easier to sit in a group like this and be like, yeah, he died for us and everything. But then when we actually need him, it's almost like we turn into atheists. It's like, well, I don't know if he's really out there. Well, why? He was out there when you were singing those songs to him. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. But then when tomorrow brings some suffering, like, well, I don't know if there's really a God because I can't see him. But we'll go to the person that we can see. So we go to maybe Big Jim over here. If I'm going through some difficult times, I'll go to him because I know he can take care of something for me. So I'll go to him and he probably would help me because he's a big hearted guy. But he can't take care of everything. But Jesus, who can take care of everything, is right there waiting for us. But so often we'd rather sing about him being able to do everything. Then when the suffering comes, we turn away from him, and we turn into atheists. And so I say atheist loosely. There's a book called uh, Christian Atheist out there. I've not fully read it, but I've seen the premise. And the Christian Atheist is a neat title. It's a catchy title because he's saying everybody loves the idea of being a Christian until you suffer. And then all of a sudden we turn into these, we don't believe in God. But that's what he's saying here. No, Jesus suffered so that when we suffer, he's there for us. But we have this union with him. Don't faith says, even though I can't see it, I'm going to trust. And so in the suffering, in the temptation, you've got to trust what you've been trained in God's word. You've got to cry out to him. You've got to place it in his hands. Doesn't mean you don't go to a gym, maybe. Does, you know, sometimes God gives us friends to bear one another's burdens, to help one another. And that may be the answer that Jesus is giving. He may send you to a brother or sister in Christ that can help you. But don't fall away from crying out to God and saying, God, right here, I need you. Because when you're tempted, he says, I can help. I've been tempted as well.
When you suffer, he says, I can help. I've suffered as well. And so this week's lesson, some interesting verses, but he's just showing these Jewish believers that Jesus, yes, he is everything. He is the creator. He is God. But he took upon flesh and blood, and he did it for you, and he's minister as he's ministering to these people and even in this he's saying jesus is greater he's greater than the angels again because of who he was and we know that he didn't stay man that when he died he rose again victorious over sin and death so all right we got through those verses uh next week we'll jump into chapter number three which i got some wonderful verses in there i'm actually in the past preached a full message from chapter three so uh I'm looking forward to getting back into those. It's been years, so I'm getting back into those verses. But all right, let's close in prayer.